Well, good morning, church. Uh, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. I'm in a midlife crisis where I'm learning how to preach with readers for the very first time. So I went to the expert, Gary, and uh, said, how do I age properly? And he said, just, yeah, he said, just he said, follow his example and just try to own it. So if I'm fidgety, it's because looking out, I see lights, and looking down, I see blurriness, and I'm not really sure how to do this yet. Um, if you've got your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to Romans 8. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 17, which we just read. And I really want you to encourage, uh, I really want to encourage you to keep them open because I think it's really important that you see, that you can point to the text and you can see uh, what we are looking at this morning. As you turn there, I want you to imagine this story. There's a child that's born into poverty and his parents cannot take care of him and so he is abandoned. And uh, he's placed in a dark orphanage where he never sees the outside world. Uh, He doesn't know any different. This is his only experience. And so as he grew up, he began to work in darkness all day long. And periodically, the master would show up and would promise him that if he just worked a little bit harder, he might get a little bit better of a meal, or he might sleep in a softer bed, or he might gain some freedom. And the fruition of that promise never comes. One day, the door opens and light floods in and, and, and the, the kid looks and he, he can't really make out uh, who this shadowy figure is uh, that, that, as the light's behind him. And he, he realizes that this is a nobleman. In fact, this is a king. And the king says, I want you to come home with me. And once home, the king took the child and he pulled him aside and he said, you need to know this, that I'm adopting you. Uh, all that I have, I want you to look out over the kingdom. This will be yours one day. Uh, You have my blessings, you have my affection, and now you have my name. And the child's heart soared. This was amazing. How does this happen? But slowly over time, the voices began to creep in. What am I doing here? I don't really belong. I'm not royalty. How can I be a prince? Sooner or later, this man is going to find out where I came from and all that I have done. And so he started thinking, if I worked just a little bit harder, maybe I can earn these blessings. Maybe I will feel like I belong. And he did, but he didn't. And even though he remembered the adoption process, even though he remembered the promises that he would inherit the kingdom, he also remembered the orphanage and he remembered the darkness. And none of this made sense to him. The king began to notice. And one day he pulled his son aside, saddened, and he said, son, You are as much a son to me today as you will ever be. Nothing you do or don't do will change that. I need you to believe me. I want you to know. I want you to live in light of that truth. Now, I've worked with young people uh, now for about 25 years, and I think that I can say uh, that the most common burden they bring to me is the assurance of their salvation. Uh, It is not unique to young people either. I have sat with many brokenhearted, middle-aged and older people who just were burdened by the fact that they just didn't know. How can I know if I'm saved? They come and they say things like, I prayed the prayer in VBS, but I don't know. I grew up in a church and was baptized, but how do I know for sure? And I think if we're honest, we all find ourselves there at some point, hearing the whispers of the orphanage and wondering, this just doesn't make sense. How can this be? And I believe that this is why Paul writes Romans 8, because in the midst of so much doctrinal truth that has been unpacked for us over the last few months, it's as if Paul pauses because he says, I want you to know for sure 
not in generalities, but in specifics, that your salvation is in fact secure. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want you to leave from here knowing not just academically, but I want you to know in your bones, I want you to know in your heart that you are in fact an adopted child of God. I want you to see the markers that Paul lays down as a litmus test so that you can point to the text and you can see God is in fact my father. I want you to look and say, there it is. That's the assurance that I need. And I say that because we live in a feelings-based culture, don't we? We allow our feelings to dictate reality all the time. And you don't have to look very far. And we can look at the culture and say, well, we see that, right? I don't feel like a man. I don't feel like a woman. But that's permeated the church as well. And we, I don't feel like I'm saved. And we need to understand that passionate feelings about the absence of gravity does not make for a very good parachute. You're not saved by faith in faith. You're saved by faith in Christ. Your profession doesn't save you. Christ saves you. Your faith is only as good as the object into which it's placed. And that reality is not rooted in how you feel about it. And so this morning, I want, you to, I want to point to Christ and his promises, not your fickle emotions. Friends, the, the, the doctrine of whether you are saved or not is far too important to leave to sentiment alone. You need something that is concrete and stable so that the winds blow and the voices creep in. You have something that you can point to and say, there it is. I know I don't feel this way. It's why I put a wedding ring on. I've been married 22, thank you. 22 years. I got kids that change ages and birthdays and grades and anniversaries. There's a lot of numbers going on up here. So 22 years. It's not like I wake up every morning with butterflies in my chest, but I look down and I'm like, there's the covenant. That's, she is my wife and I am hers. She is my chosen and I am hers. I am Christ's chosen. Why? There has to be a marker. That's why we point to the text this morning. Because to live in uncertainty, that's what empty religion wants to do to you. Because it wants the fear that comes from the insecurity so that it can manipulate you. Pray five times a day and maybe God will be pleased with you. Give enough money and then maybe you'll get in if God's in the the right mood at the right time. And Christianity says, no, 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 no. You have been adopted. I've done the work from beginning to end. Stand into these blessings. Take the name and trust and if you leave with nothing else this morning, leave with this. You, if you are in Christ, and we'll talk about that litmus test, if you are in Christ, you are as much a son or a daughter right now as you will ever be. You don't become more of a son or more of a daughter. This is why Paul writes Romans 8. Because the last two chapters take us on a little bit of a roller coaster ride, don't they? Chapter 6, you've been set free from sin. You are risen with him. You're not under the law, you're under grace, and that's pretty good news, and we get excited about that. And then chapter 7, right back down. I'm of the flesh, and I can't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. A wretched man am I. And so the laments of chapter 7 seem to contradict the hope and confidence of 6. Didn't Paul tell us that we've been set free from sin? So why do I get irritable when I don't get enough sleep? Why do I get defensive when I'm threatened? It's in this context that Paul stops in chapter 8. Remember, those chapter divisions were not there. It just flows right to it. And in chapter 8, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's good news. But there's a qualifier there. 
He doesn't say there's no condemnation and let it go. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the engaged reader asks the next question. Am I in Christ? And that's the million-dollar question that every person has to come to grips with at some point. Because Paul doesn't want you wandering around in the dark. He begins to give you some markers so that you can have confidence in that question. And this is what Grant preached on last week. Paul goes on to say that if you are in Christ, you now possess the Holy Spirit. And because of that, in verse 5, you've set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And then he goes on in verse 9, he lays down the dividing line. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that's a big if, isn't it? Amazing how two letters can carry the weight of eternity in them. Verse 9 goes on. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. For Paul, there are only two types of people in the world, those who have the Spirit and those who don't. There is no middle ground. You either have the Holy Spirit and you are saved or you don't, and therefore verse, verse 1 is not true. You are still under condemnation. Essentially, what Paul is saying is that having the Holy Spirit is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you add a little Jesus to your life like a bumper sticker or simply believe about Jesus. It doesn't mean that you go to church and that you give money. It doesn't even mean that you have warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus. The distinguishing mark of the Christian, according to Paul, is that you possess the Holy Spirit because Christian status is not gained by external acts. Paul's addressed that extensively in the first seven chapters. The mark of the believer is the miracle of receiving the Holy Spirit, of being united to the Godhead himself. And this is vital, friends, because there are so many people who profess Christ, but never actually possess Christ. But remember, when Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, We love that text because it's very practical. But when he wraps it up in chapter 7, what does he say? I think it's the scariest passage in the Bible. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these were people who did things in his name. I don't want to be that. So how can I be sure that I do, in fact, possess the Holy Spirit? And this is what Paul's going to lay down. How can I know? And I think this is really important. I think this is a vital text. So I'm going to pray again before we really begin to walk through it. Heavenly Father, there is so much uncertainty in our lives. And we confess that our faith is weak and it is frail. And we are hesitant to believe this stuff at times. And so I ask for your Holy Spirit, for those that don't know you, that your spirit would open their eyes this morning, that you would come streaming into their hearts with wonder and amazement at the work you have done. And for those of us who have walked with you for a long time, but constantly hear the whispers of the orphanage and of the dungeon and are drawn back into slavery, that you would remind us that we are sons and daughters of the King and that we would go forth in that confidence and that when Satan tempts us, we would say, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Look, it says right here, you're wrong. May we leave from here on more solid footing than we came. Teach us what we don't know. Convict us where we need it. Encourage us where we need it as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this can be a tough text, and uh, there's a lot here. So I want you to keep your Bibles open so that you can highlight these verses. Go back to it on Thursday when you begin to question it again. Meditate on them. Memorize them. So how does verse 12 begin? So then... 
And whenever it says that, it's pointing back to last week's text, which dealt with the regenerating work of God. Paul's saying, because you possess the Holy Spirit, because Christ dwells in you, because God grants life to your mortal bodies, those were all things that Grant addressed, you no longer owe the flesh anything. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What do you owe the flesh? You owe the flesh nothing. It has brought nothing in your life but trouble, hardship, misery, and the promise of death. And Paul wants his readers to know that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit has set you free from that. You no longer owe it absolutely anything. That debt has been paid. Think back to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Why do we still want to draw on that account? Why do we still want to go back to it? It is an empty promise. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Imagine that you had a certain boss that you worked for for 20 years. And you got your wages and you went your way. And then you decided, you know what, I need to change. I'm going to get a different job. And six months later, you get a call from your former boss who says, hey, uh, I I need you to do this for me. Now, habit may say, okay, and you just go back to doing it. But your new boss is saying, hold on. Like, I'm paying this now. You're on my time. Christ has bought us. You have a new boss. You have a new wage, or as the NASB puts it, you are under a new obligation, but no longer one that the flesh demands. Paul's telling his, these people not to become slaves again to the very same thing that they've been set free from. Grant has pounded that for about six weeks because Paul understands how much temptation we have to going back. The boss that was the flesh had deadly consequences. Look at verse 13. For if, and there's that word again, circle it. Those are serious. These are not empty threats. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Jump ahead to verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So what Paul really is doing here is he's calling witnesses to the stand in your life who can say, here's what I see. I'm bringing these things into the light so that you might know. So when a police officer shows up at a scene and says, are there any witnesses? Somebody steps forward and says, officer, here's what I know. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He's bringing these witnesses to the stand. Do you put sin to death? Witness number one. Do you hate it? Are you trying to kill it? To put to death in verse 13 is not put to death sin in order to be a son, but rather you will put to death the deeds of the body because you are led by the Spirit as sons. And this is key. How does the four in verse 14, I know it's a little tricky here, a little technical, tie back to verse 13? These are the questions that we need to ask. And, and, and I don't think kids anymore have to diagram sentences in school, which is a shame because I think they should all have to be as miserable as we were doing that on the whiteboard and the teacher yelling at you. But more than that, it's because it teaches us how to read the Bible. The Bible's not an easy book to read. And I, I've worked with so many young people where it's like, you tell me to read it, but I don't even know how to read it. Put a pen, write question marks. When you see therefores, ask what they're there for. What are the buts? What are the ifs? Follow the argument. Because God doesn't reveal himself in a TikTok video. He reveals himself in written 
language, and that can be difficult. It requires searching, and it requires diligence. Now, some of you have seen those trashy daytime television shows. I, I think, I don't even know if it's still on. When I was growing up, it was Jerry Springer. And often they would bring somebody on and they would, they would do these, these DNA tests to see who the dad was. Um, and that's, in a sense, I think what Paul is doing here. He is bringing out witnesses to put down DNA markers so that you can confidently say at the end of the show, God's my father. Like, I have the markings of his son. And so the first line of evidence is, are you putting sin to death? And the tense of that word is not past. It's not have you put, it's are you putting. It requires constant taking up your cross, dying to self, daily cutting it off. And so we have, to, we have the task of putting to death the deeds of the body, but we also have the means through which we can do it. Like where God calls, he provides He doesn't say, go do it on your own. He gives us the tool. And what is the tool that he lays down? Namely, the Spirit. Could you ask for a better partner to do something than than God himself? And so the Spirit leads us to do this. The Spirit equips us to do this. And one of the evidences of our sonship, not the only one, but one of them is the Holy Spirit confirms his presence in our life by how much do we hate sin? Are we trying to destroy it? The children of God, we hate sin because our Father hates sin. God himself dwells in us. We have new hearts, new affections. Our minds are set on the things above. We now have the same values, family values. The reason I'm a Cubs fan and an IU fan is because my parents were. Because if I had to start from scratch, I'd root for Duke and the Yankees, right? But I root for those teams because I saw my parents' affection for those two teams growing up. I watched them cheer, and my tendencies began to take shape around the things that my parents valued. It's the same here. It doesn't mean that we periodically don't go back to these moments of temptation as we battle the flesh. I think this is why Paul is very honest in chapter 7. When he writes, for I don't understand what I do. I know I shouldn't do that. I know those things are lies, but I'm just drawn back to them time and time again. And we do that. You know money doesn't bring you happiness. And yet we check our bank accounts all the time, right? You know that people are gonna let you down and yet we get bitter when they do. And so we go back to this over and over again. But Paul hates it that he does it. He despises it. He still battles sin because sin still remains in the life of the believer. But here's the difference. Sin doesn't reign in the life of the believer. And so the question for us is, do I hate sin enough to kill it? John Owen, I believe, has written the best book on this. It's The Mortification of Sin in Believers. And to mortify means to kill. It's a book I highly recommend, and I'm going to summarize it with one line. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, but sin is not neutral. And sadly, there's so many professing Christians today that we just say, well, I'll just 1 John 1, 9 it, right? If I confess our sins, he's faithful and just, as if he's obligated to forgive your sin. He is only obligated to do anything that his faithful character demands that he does. He's not obligated to do anything we want him to do. He is constrained only by his own promises, But Paul has already addressed this back in chapter 6. Are you to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's he say? No. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And you say, but but Nate, I still sin. And I say, yeah, so do I. Every day. And I hate it. 
I don't want to live in it. I want to struggle with it. And there's a difference between wallowing in your sin and wailing because of it. Don't settle down and get cozy with it. Punch it, kick it, grieve it, and you will battle it until the day you die. You'll battle it till the day you die. And I may have told this story before here, but I remember sitting down with a group of older men at a coffee shop when I was 20-ish, right before I got married. And I remember looking down and I just threw out like, guys, how long will I struggle with something like lust? And they all got quiet and looked down at their coffee cups. And oldest guy at the table, the far side said, well, I know you won't be done at 85. And I remember just going, are you kidding me? Like, are you really? And I asked some questions. He said, look, it gets easier, but you will constantly. And I think there's a grace that God gives us here so that you are constantly reliant upon him in this struggle. But the point here, I think, that Paul is making is that you possess the spirit and you are a child of God. And part of that marker is, are you putting to death the deeds of the body? Are you battling sin? Are you going to war with it? Do you hate it? But that's not how many of us live our lives with sin, is it? We treat it like a pet baby tiger and it sits at our feet and we kind of pet it. And we're like, anxiety, that's not really a big sin, is it? It just kind of sits there and we feed it, we feed it and we feed it. And what happens? Eventually it grows into a tiger. And the tiger one day looks up and is like, I'm hungry and it will consume you. Let's look at what about entertainment, right? This is maybe the American acceptable private sin. We tolerate so much filth a little bit at a time, justifying the freedom that we have, foolishly denying the fact that it desensitizes us a little bit at a time to sexuality, to vulgarity, to profanity. And if you are desensitized, friends, you are on dangerous ground. If you're comfortable with filth on television, be careful. I had a friend tell me a couple of years ago that he knew that it was a big time problem. He thought he had just barely struggled with pornography till one day he said he grabbed his dinner and he went to the computer screen and he said he sat down and he realized this, is, this has become the tiger. This has taken over my life. This is no longer something that's isolated here. I have brought it into my life when I'm eating dinner in front of it. Let's not be presumptuous about these things. If you love your sin, we have every reason to question whether we are in fact a child of God. Now, J.I. Packer has a great line. He says, the Christian faith is not let go and let God. It's trust God and get going. It's not legalism. It's the result of the regeneration. You are a new creation now. Legalism says, do this to earn that. Salvation says, you've been saved, now live like it. Friends, go to war with your sin. It is at war with you whether you know it or not. It wants to kill you. Jesus tells you to hate it enough to cut the hand off that does it or to gouge out the eye that seeks it. Sin is not your friend. You know its pleasure does not last. You know it. And when your mind says, no, I can tolerate a little bit, look at James 1.15. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, what does it bring? It brings death. Scripture does not diminish the power and intent of sin. I like how Alistair Begg puts it. A thought not killed leads to an act. An act not killed leads to continual action. Continual action leads to a habit. A habit not killed leads to character. And character not killed leads to a destiny. Now, I used to take high school boys backpacking uh, after they graduated. We went out to Yosemite one time and 
were, they're naive, right? I mean, every 18-year-old boy thinks they're Bear, bear Grylls. And we're out there, and we're sitting on a log resting, and all of a sudden, I, we feel a little nudge behind us, and I turn around, and there's a bear cub. I mean, right there. Somebody had probably fed it trail mix one day, and it thought, oh, people. It wasn't interested in eating us, but you know who might have been interested in eating us? Mama bear. And so the boys, who don't know any different, they're like, oh, cute little bear cub. And I'm like, grabbing kids. I'm throwing them back up. You know, I'm looking around and they're like, it's just a little bear. It's the size of my dog. I could take it. I'm like, you may be able to, but there's a danger lurking here that you don't see. And so as we begin to work our way down the trail, you know, the boys are trying to throw trail mix and I'm smacking them around a little bit. It's not cute. And every snap of a twig in there, every rustling leaf, I'm jumping because I know what's out there. There's a mama bear looking for a cub. And this is exactly what sin does. And the spirit lives in us. It awakens our senses of the fact that we are at war and we should be on edge in regards to sin to know that you are being hunted. I have a friend who I used to teach with who now travels quite a bit. And he calls ahead to every hotel room before he gets there. And he says, I need you to do two things before I check in. One is you have to take the television out of my room. And he said, number two, you either have to disable Wi-Fi or you have to take every electronic device I have when I check in. That's a man who understands I have struggled in this area and I am not going to revert back. I am not going to concede ground. It's what God told Cain, right? It's desire is to overtake you. Another friend of mine resigned from a very high paying job because one day he looked out and he realized I am attracted to my secretary. He saw the signs. He took over, and six figures wasn't enough to pay for his soul. Paul calls holiness to testify here. If holiness means nothing to us, then why would we have any reason to think we have the Holy Spirit? Go back, read, and reread 6 through 8 and see how passionate Paul is about this, how much he hates it, how much he struggles with it. Sinclair Ferguson says, high degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with low levels of obedience. So the first mark of sonship for us is to be led by the Spirit. Do we hate and want to kill sin? The second way the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit is seen in verses 14 through 15. Look at them. For all, not for some, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Don't go back. You receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so how does this happen? How does it replace the fear of a slave towards a master with the affection of a son towards a father? And Paul's drawing out a contrast between the obedience that comes from forced oppression and replacing it with familial affection. You see, there's an obedience that arises from a fear that makes you wonder whether you belong, and then there's an obedience that arises from a wonder that you belong. One lives in crushing fear of rejection, the other in awe of acceptance. Now I have some friends who adopted a child from Russia, and they talk about going into that orphanage and seeing how dark and dirty and neglected these kids were. They had no hope. The food was sparse. The conditions uh, were, were unhuman. And they took a child out of those conditions and brought them into a loving home. They gave them a last name. They gave them a legacy. They gave them an inheritance. They put their name on the will. 
showered him with affection, provided food and a future. This kid had won the lottery and he didn't even know it. But as he grows up and they sit down and say, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you where you came from. The son's gonna do one of two things. He's either gonna say, well, yeah, you're obligated to do that. That's great and move on. Or he's gonna say, wow, what do I need to do? And the dad's gonna say, you don't need to do anything. Like you are as much a son the minute I signed that paperwork as you're ever going to be. Don't live in servile fear that you think I'm gonna reject you. I'm not sending you back. Unadopting children is not what God does. He holds us fast. And that's where we're going at the end of chapter eight, right? That nothing will separate us from the love of God. The Spirit doesn't, does not get you to kill sin out of a paranoid fear of rejection, but out of love out of the obligation we have to not go back, out of an appreciation of what our Father has done is pulling us out. We just understand these things here at times and they don't really move our hearts and that's to our detriment. And that's because we are frail and weak. You need to pray, Lord, enlighten my eyes to these things. Move my heart to these realities again. The Spirit dwells in you. Trust Him. Look to the Word. This is how you know. Friends, this is a real and genuine God-given affection for God. He's the hero of the story. So the question is, does your heart cry out, Father, this is the essence of Christianity. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much stock they put in the thought of being God's child. If that doesn't become the foundation for their prayers and for their worship and their whole outlook on life, then I don't think they understand Christianity very well. I believe that the cry that Paul mentions here says, Abba, Father, is not one of triumphant living. I believe the context here is that cry that comes from a repentant heart. I remember when my daughters were little and you had disciplined them and they knew that you were disappointed. And I remember sitting in my office and one of them would peek around the corner and you'd say, sweetie, come here. And they'd walk out and they'd hang their head and they'd just say, dad, they'd walk over to you and give you a hug. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think it is that type of acceptance that understands, man, I have messed it up, but I want to be in my dad's lap. Like, I want him to restore me and remind me. I think captured in that cry is the recognition of a relationship. And in that moment, it communicates everything. You embrace because there's something that says, you are my daughter. You're my son. Let's move on. I believe that that may be how it unfolded with the prodigal son and his dad. The dad running, the son's head down in shame, the silence broken by a simple dad. And then an embrace, followed by tears, followed by laughter. Son, welcome home. (laughs) You're not going to be a servant. You're my son. That never changed. And I think this is where Paul's going to end in verse 38 and 39 that Grant gets to in a couple of weeks, that life and death, nothing separates these things. Do you believe it when it says nothing? Or do you say, well, I'm not included in nothing. I can separate. And he says, you, no, you can't. You can't. I hold you fast. I'm the hero of the story. Finally, and I don't want you, I don't want to take a ton of time here but I want to notice that there is both a consequence and a blessing that wrap up this section. Look at verse 17. The consequence is that you will suffer. And that may include the persecution of our faith. I think the immediate context is a suffering that comes from battling sin in a fallen world. Because it hurts, doesn't it? 
It hurts when we don't give in to our fleshly desires. Going to war against sin is a way of suffering. When you fight it with everything you have, when you take up your cross and it hurts, you continue to deny self and the whispers, do it, do it, do it. No, no, no. Any of you who have dieted know what I'm talking about, right? You're on a diet and somebody thinks they're blessing you by bringing Long's Donuts to your door. It's like, no, stop. I don't want to do that. It's painful. John Piper uses an illustration here. I think that, that, that helps us out. He says, imagine there are three men and they've had millstones tied around their waists and somebody threw the millstone into a well and that rope cuts into your back and the first guy's like, yeah, this just isn't worth it and he just gives in. The second guy battles for a little bit until he's like, man, I'm getting blisters on my hands. Kind of hurts a little bit and he gives in. The third guy's like, I'm not giving in. And he digs his heels in and the rope cuts into his back and blood begins to pour out of the wounds. And the blisters begin to, to he's sweating. He's like, I'm not going in. I'm not going in. I'm not going in. That is a man who's suffering, but he's not giving in. I believe that's the type of suffering, at least in part of what Paul's talking about here. Now, Paul will go on to say next week that he doesn't consider these sufferings worthy of comparing to the glory that's coming. A mark of sonship is identifying with Christ in his suffering. But here's the good news also in his glory, right? Do you see the magnitude of verse 17? How amazing that we would be brought from enemies, now follow this, who are hostile to God, to adopted children who are now heirs with Christ and ultimately share in his glory. Is that just a pipe dream for you? Is that a fairy tale? Or does the spirit testify in your life that that is a reality? You are an heir with Christ. You have an inheritance, Forfeit this world so that you might gain your soul and with that gain Christ. And so you're a discerning reader, so you're like, what do I gain? What do I inherit? That's what I want to know. So that's a good question. Romans 4.13, Paul already told us, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring would be that he would be heir of the world. You inherit the world. And you say, oh, Nate, I'm not Abraham's offspring. And I say, well, you need to read the Bible a little bit better because it says in Galatians 3, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you are in Christ, you are now recipients of these promises. You own them. They're guaranteed. They've been sealed in blood via the covenant. Do you believe that? But I think we gain something even better. And don't miss this. Revelation 21.3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We inherit the world is great, but you know what we inherit that's even better? The very presence of God himself. That's the entire narrative of the Bible. God's restoration of Eden where, he, where people dwelt with him, to restoring that in the new Jerusalem. We don't reign as individual gods, as some cults proclaim. We simply get to be around God himself and the presence of God himself, radiating from the glory of God himself. We inherit God. It's like when your dads go on business trips and you come back and you've been away from your six, seven, eight-year-old, and what do they do? They're kind of like, looking around, nobody wants to say it, and then finally they can't contain it anymore, and they're like, Dad, what'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? And you hand out your T-shirts or your candy bars. But that doesn't happen when you get older, right? When you go pick up your dad at the airport or a while, you're just like, Dad, it's good to have you back. 
He doesn't say, what do you bring me anymore? I just want your presence with me. This is what we get to look forward to. And I don't think we value it enough because we don't contemplate it enough to be in the presence of our holy God. Now, I want to close with this, and hopefully by way of encouragement, because there's some hard balances to walk this morning. Do you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God? Well, don't do this. Don't sit around in a dark room waiting for some soft whisper to come out of the darkness and that you might feel a certain way. Open to this page, put your finger on the text and see, and then ask, help me to kill sin. May ask the Holy Spirit to soften our heart that we might cry out, Father, and that the Spirit would give you the strength to endure suffering, desire, glory, and treasure Christ. His Spirit has been sent not as some, you know, band-aid. He's been sent to testify to these things in our life and to enable us to do them. But let me say this. If you are wrestling with whether you are saved or not, I think it's a pretty good sign. I don't think non-believers wrestle with their salvation. I don't think they care. I, I think that's part of the Holy Spirit testifying in our lives, the inner dialogue of that question. I don't think Satan puts that question in the lives of unbelievers. I think he's happy to leave well enough alone. I think he uses presumption there. I think he uses doubt for those who actually are God's children, that we might be paralyzed and worthless for the kingdom. So for those of you this morning living in perpetual state of fear and uncertainty, Look to the book. There's nothing magical about this. See the promises. Lean into the promises. Where else would you go? Where else would you go? These are the words of eternal life. Because I believe chapter eight is all about certainty. It begins with a declaration that there's no condemnation and it ends with the assurance that nothing will separate us from his love. But in the middle are these gracious checklists that can allow us to be sure. Do you hate sin? Do you cry out to God as father? And are you suffering with him? You don't have to be left in the dark. Point to it. That when Satan comes to tempt you to despair, which may be by two o'clock, then you can still can say, you can look right here and say, devil, you're wrong. Like you took your best shot and you failed. And he beats you and he lives. And because of that, I live forever with him. And you can't change that. And he says here, he'll never leave me or forsake you or forsake me, so you can just go. Amen? Let me pray.